0: Good evening and welcome here to 5x15. I'm Rosie Boycott, I was a co-founder of 5x15 with Daisy and Eleanor and I'm incredibly thrilled tonight to be able to talk to and meet online one of my heroes, and I'm completely delighted that by absolute coincidence we're both wearing pink. Um, not quite sure what that says about things, but anyway, it has it is a fact. Now, Lee Child, I think, is probably familiar to most people in the world. Um, they may not have read as many Jack Reaches as I have, which is all of them, and I do devour them when they arrive. But Lee Child is on the radar of an enormous range of people, I mean the New Yorker, Malcolm Gladwell, John Lanchester, people like that write about the extraordinariness of Lee Childs fiction and in particular they write about his extraordinary creation, Jack Reacher. Um, Reacher is a loner, he kills an incredible amount of people from page one until the end He's weirdly, I, I think for someone like me, who's been a feminist for years, he's, he's not essentially a very attractive character and yet I love him. And I find that I puzzle about this quite a lot, which is another great reason to have Lee here tonight. Um, in terms of numbers, apparently one gets sold every nine seconds somewhere around the world. It's in 50 languages, 100 million books sold. Uh, it's an industry. Lee starts a new book every September the 1st and Reacher writes the books, but we'll come on to that in due course. Now, we're going to talk for about 45 minutes and there's a Q&A button at the bottom and uh, please send in some questions. Um, you can have superlatives about Lee Child um, in every single direction. He's also a judge of the Booker Prize, which is, um, as everyone in England probably knows now, has been delayed by... 48 hours because of President Obama's book, but I probably wouldn't have been for the other. And he is also um, the subject of a new biography, which is called The Reacher Guide by Heather Martin. It's great. It's a really good book, but I guess that I prefer the real thing. So Lee, thank you. And very big welcome here tonight to Five by 15. Thank end. you, Rosie. So it's where, re- where re- are going re- to start? Say so again? I so said, where are you for, for, to begin with?
1: Oh, I'm in, uh, I'm in Colorado, northern Colorado, in my daughter's basement because I, I'm fixing up a house
0: nearby, and so it's good to be on hand. And you have now, with your next book, which is The Sentinel, you have decided to start working with your brother. What's, what's the, the theory behind why do you want to stop being the sole creator of Reacher?
1: Well, I mean, that's, it's a multi-layered answer to that, to be honest. Um, The first problem is that I'm getting old. Um, And that is a sort of structural problem in my interior life, I suppose. I, you know, born in Britain um, and grew up in a culture that very much was laid out in advance. First of all, you went to school for a little while, then you worked for a very long time then you retired at the age of 65. And that was a fixed milestone in people's lives. And I remember starting at primary school. Uh, and around that time, both of my grandfathers were retiring. And I remember not really understanding the word. And there I was struggling with all this reading and writing at, at school. And I said to my mother, what does it mean retiring? And um, she said, well, it means they just don't go to work anymore. And I remember at five years old thinking, well, that sounds pretty good. (laughs) And so it was always a kind of um, something on the horizon and I've now arrived there, but really it's more to do with simply the creative process because when I started writing the Reacher books, I made myself a promise and by implication, therefore a promise to the reader, I will never ever phone it in. I will make every book as good as I possibly can because that's something that you see. If you're, if you're a big reader, especially in my genre, especially of series, you're going to notice that some of them droop. Some of them just fall (laughs) off a cliff at some point. Clearly the author is tired or bored or something. So I made myself a promise. I would never do that. I would try to be like an athlete and look ahead to where I was just a yard off the pace or whatever, and um, so and I never have found it in. I'm sort of proud of the fact that every book that I've done is as good as I possibly could make it, but I've, looking ahead, I couldn't see doing that for more than another two or three years maybe, and it's a bit like if you've got a trusty old car and suddenly it starts making a slight noise, you think to yourself, oh dear, you know, maybe next year I'll have to change it or maybe I'll get another couple of years out of it. But you've admitted the possibility. It's in your head. This is something with a with a with an expiry date on it. And so it's, um, I could have kept going for a year or two probably. But the demand, the emotional demand from the reader is something that has completely overwhelmed me. I mean, what a gorgeous position to be in. When I started out, if somebody had said to me, 25 years from now, it would be a real problem if you gave up the character, I would have been thrilled. Uh, So I'm thinking, I'm going to have to disappoint the reader. I'm going to have to stop this. And then I had a kind of silly daydream wouldn't it be great to wake up in the morning 15 years younger you know full of the same energy and passion and ideas that I had 15 years ago but of course that's just a fantasy Uh, then of course it struck me well wait a minute I have a a younger brother who is very like me uh, in every way Uh, mentally, physically, we share the same DNA, obviously, we share the same attitudes, a lot of the same experiences. He's also a writer, suppose he could continue it. That would be as close to seamless as possible and it would give the reader at least another 10 or 15 books. Uh, So I asked him and he agreed to do it. And so that is the plan now, we're gonna transition slowly over the next book or two Uh, I'll progressively step back. He'll step forward and he'll take over. And the first one that we did together is coming out this month on the 27th. It's terrific. uh, The Sentinel. Mm. And, uh, you know, I don't want to tempt fate, but I honestly think it's worked. I think it has, it's come out as a really great Reacher book. It was uh, a pleasure to do, a bit of a learning curve for both of us. But I'm really encouraged. I think this might be a plan that works. And how, you know, what a nice thing
0: is that. It's a very nice thing. But so um, if we go back, and I'm sure you've had to do this many times, but I think that your the, the biography shows a lot of light on it. You, you grew up in quite a, a, a tough environment. I mean, you were quite hostile towards your mother um, we can come onto that in a bit, but what I'm really interested in was you You had a big job at Granada, you put the whole thing together, you you ran the control room, you were in charge of making extraordinary series like uh, Brideshead Revisited, and then you suddenly get fired. And it's at that moment that you sit down and think, I can be a novelist. Did you actually think at that point, I could be a novelist like you have become? Well, you know,
1: to, 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 to promise yourself or to expect or plan on any level of success in any of the entertainment arenas is crazy. I mean, so no, you can't go into it and say um, 25 years later, I'm going to be you know, worldwide bestseller and, uh, with a character that has become a household name. If you were to say that at the beginning it's just deranged. The the men in the white coats would come and take you away. Everything to do with entertainment is is unknowable. Um, So, no, at the beginning of writing, I thought I could probably... I was looking at it uh, two years at a time. I thought maybe I'll get a two-book contract and that'll be two years before I have to get another job. Or if I'm lucky, I'll get another two-book contract and spin it out that way. So, no, I... Looking forward when I started, it's, it's just not reasonable to say, yeah, this is definitely going to work. Um, it's, it's just all about, I hesitate to say luck. My agent hates it when I say luck because, you know, there's an immense amount of work and, mm. and skill goes into it. But even so, you do need a little bit of luck somehow. You need to be the right guy in the right place at the right time, Uh, in in a thousand different ways. And so, yeah, luck
0: luck plays a big part. And did Reacher arrive fully formed to you? I mean, clearly you were quite pissed off with the people at Granada because you used some of their names in some of the early books. So was there, I mean, did you have a personal sense that the little guy gets rolled over and I want my character to come in and take vengeance?
1: Yeah, precisely that. Um, And I I was aware it wasn't just me. You know, this was in the sort of middle 90s, where where literally hundreds of thousands of people were going through the same thing that I was, both in the UK and in the US. It was that era when finally they they said, you know what, we're just going to bludgeon this we'll get rid of the old expensive people and we'll bring in cheap new people with non-union contracts and no benefits and no pensions and all Mm -hmm. of that kind of thing exactly the same situation that millions of people were put through in the 90s and so in a way catharsis for me but also catharsis for those millions of people i thought yeah let's have a situation where somebody has been thrown out of what they have been accustomed to their whole life and is now adrift with the future uncertain, but let's make him utterly unconcerned about it, just completely happy about it, as a way of kind of consoling or encouraging myself and all these other readers. Uh, So that was the basic plan, have somebody that had been dislocated from a previous life now in a new life, but dealing with it really well. Uh, and within the parameters of that character, yeah, it was fully formed, fully formed in my head. And I didn't, I didn't really want to figure out where it came from early on, just in case that burst the bubble. You know, you must never overthink anything in, in entertainment. A lot of it is purely instinctive. So I never really thought about it until. A few years later, when I was secure in the character, I thought, okay, where does this guy come from? And clearly he comes from everything that I've read or, and consumed before. Um, in fact, he's a, really a permanent historical character, the noble loner, the mm-hmm. mysterious stranger who shows up in stories from everywhere. Uh, you know, in America, people say, well, he's a Western hero. You, you've taken him from the Westerns. Well, not really, because the Westerns stole that character from medieval Europe, Mm -hmm. the the knight-errant. And that was really a development of Norse and Scandinavian sagas and Anglo-Saxon stories. And you find the same thing happening in all different cultures. The Japanese culture, the ronin, a samurai who's been disowned by his master and sentenced to wander the land doing good. This character has always existed. Um, which then begs the question, well, why? You know, why do we keep reinventing this particular motif over and over again? And it can only be that as humans, we intensely desire such a person, which I think we absolutely do. I mean, all of us in our regular life have annoyances and irritations and frustrations, um, the pettiness of everything. If you, you know, your car gets stolen. Um, you're never gonna see it again. I mean, it's just, or your house gets burgled. The police won't, probably won't even come. There's a low level buzz of frustration all the time. And I think that's why people turn to fiction. And in particular mine, if somebody's car gets stolen you bet they're gonna get it back. Not only are they gonna get it back but Jack Reacher is gonna slap the perpetrator around. And to have that closure within a day or two of reading is intensely satisfying to people. They, they want it, and they love it, and they feel, they feel encouraged and consoled that, yes, there can be order in the world. Things can be put to rights. Um, and that is such a permanent trope in fiction that it shows, I think, people want it. People want mm. things to be fixed.
0: Yes, and, and they want things to be fair. So when you first conceive Reacher and you have a guy who's one inch taller than you, but a great deal bigger, um, ex-military, as you say, these were the, the toughest people, um, that he only carries a toothbrush and he changes his clothes by going into a shop and changing in the changing room and chucking the others away. So you gave him very, very little baggage, um, completely different from any other detective hero who has a soap opera running around with him. Was it, has it been very difficult over the years not to give him any other tropes as such? I mean, do you find one day you think I'd really like him to have this thing with him? It's so disciplined.
1: Well, the movie people would like me to because it would help with merchandising. I mean, (laughs) that's-
0: Well, you could have Reacher cats and things.
1: Yeah, it was, was, um, you know, it was a very minimalist approach that then reduces commercial opportunities later but you used a couple of important phrases there um completely different and soap opera and and that was totally conscious yeah because um if you analyze it all the other great series in this genre are fundamentally soap operas in that Mm -hmm. they uh, and I'm not knocking soap operas at all. I mean, as as you as you know, I worked at Granada where we made Coronation Street, which is the uber soap of all time, mm-hmm. and there is no more powerful narrative engine than a soap opera. <clears throat> but everybody else was doing it with a, a repertory cast of characters. The main character may be <clears throat> his or her best friend, or a neighbour, mm-hmm. or bar owner, or that. They maybe have a dog and they have a favorite restaurant and they have a nephew who is a computer hacker and all that kind of thing. Um, probably fixed employment in a fixed location. And so absolutely, it's a soap opera and that's wonderful. I mean there are soap opera has so many advantages as, as a storytelling medium because even if you don't really love the main character, there's probably another character that you love. And so there's a, it spreads the load a little bit and um, super powerful, but everybody was doing it. Mm -hmm. And I just thought, well, if everybody's doing it, why jump into an already crowded pool? Let's do something completely different. And I specifically had in mind, for instance, somebody like Michael Connolly, who Mm -hmm. started out before I did. Um, He was a few novels into it and I could tell they were great. And this guy was gonna be a big star. So why would I go to head, head-to-head with the same concept as him? Mm-hmm. And so I kind of did everything deliberately backward that he was doing. His guy is called Hieronymus Bosch, yeah. which is a, you know, a complex and uh, name with implications. So I thought, all right, I'm gonna have the simplest name. He's Hieronymus, mine's gonna be Jack. Um, Bosch works as a police detective in Los Angeles. So Rita was going to have no job and no place uh, simply for the variety and to lock it in that little bit better with the knight-errant, with the mysterious wanderer. He had to wander for the same reason I gave him no family at the beginning. In the first book, his parents are are dead already and his brother has just been killed and he's completely alone in the world, which again was necessary on a literary basis. You can't have a noble loner with a mom you know it just doesn't work um so it was it was deliberately constructed in that way because i sensed that i mean i was gender wise a little wrong at the beginning i would sense the 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 freedom to to just move on and the complete lack of responsibility you know no bills no mortgage no nothing if you don't like where you are you can be somewhere else tomorrow initially i thought that would be a largely male fantasy Uh, turns out to be equally a woman's fantasy, the idea of just giving it up and walking away. And that has become a a huge part of the appeal, I think. Plus, his no-nonsense approach. If somebody messes with him, he will mess with them back. And I I think especially women find anger so hard to deal with or so hard to express. Uh, Vicariously, they um they're side by side with Reacher they're letting him express their feelings and it was interesting what you what you said before as well about things being not fair which anecdotally in my life I've noticed that is much more of a female feeling than a male feeling males are men kind of put up with it they accept the gray areas women are capable of feeling damn it that is just not fair and that is a very powerful human emotion. And Reacher shares that. So that I think the appeal is Reacher at, outside is hyper-masculine, you know, huge, rugged, tough. But inside, he's very feminine. He, he hates injustice in a, in a primitive way, almost an inchoate way. He just won't tolerate it. And I think that's what links him to the emotional appeal for women.
0: Yes, and I think that, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but it, I, I think if my memory serves me right, Reacher never tries to seduce anyone. They always make the first move.
1: Yeah, exactly. And that is, you know, that's misremembered. A, a, a lot of brief critiques call them love them and leave them. Time. No, no. No, it's absolutely not, not his decision. He, he tends to be attracted by strong, intelligent women. Which is a catch 22, because the more intelligent the woman is, the more she realizes, yeah, this is going to be great for 48 hours, but there is no future in this. And so it's richer himself who is continually rejected, which I think produces the emotional strength of the character in that he absolutely enjoys his solitude, but he is simultaneously very lonely. And Trying to square that circle emotionally is what drives him along. And he is absolutely grateful. If he blows into some town and there's a waitress or a woman cop or something that will talk to him, he loves that because he he needs that connection.
0: And is the loneliness an essential part of Reach's character? I mean, could you, I know he has one, Francis Negley comes back into a few books and you do sense that he has a great attachment to her, but is it, in, is it imperative that he must always move on?
1: Yeah, he's, he's, he's driven in two different directions. He would love to develop a longer relationship or have more fun with whoever it is, but he is driven to move all the time. He can't settle, and, and that's the fundamental thing that uh, in last year's book, Blue Moon, Uh, He he explicitly asks the woman to come with him. He says, why don't you come with me? And she says, I can't do that. And there is the clash that he lives this life that is completely dislocated and divorced from normality. And to find a companion that would do that with him is is impossible.
0: So in in his New Yorker piece about you, John Lanchester says this interesting thing that you managed to... You manage to stay in the realm of the believable in the duration of the time one is reading the book. But of course, if you step out of that moment, you go, well, I mean, I don't know how many people Reacher has killed off in all these books, but I mean, it must be north of a couple of hundred easily and he he goes through them with no sense of remorse or no sense of I mean they deserve to be I mean a lot of them it seems to me deserve to be kicked to smithereens but maybe not killed as well but they're killed what is the kind of where do you see the morality I mean if if you heard that someone had practiced reach a justice uh, what would you say has that ever happened well
1: yeah I mean that's a completely fascinating issue because it, it What Risha does is, of course, completely wrong. Uh, You know, he's a psychopath, basically. And and I, I saw a great capsule description of the series online. Somebody said, this is a detective series where the detective commits more homicides than he solves. And so it's all completely wrong and unacceptable, except that readers, in my opinion, are sufficiently intelligent and sophisticated to understand that almost simply because it's in a work of fiction, it's an escape valve, it's a safety valve. And it's something, because it's in fiction, it's something that we collectively acknowledge should not exist in reality. And most readers, as you know, are thoughtful, civilized, intelligent people. And they understand that in, in, in the real world, we can't run our society like that. Of course, there have to be, has to be a proper legal system. There has to be rights to the victim and rights to the accused and a fair trial and rules of evidence and all of that good stuff. People know that, but it is intensely frustrating sometimes. Uh, in real life, we see it all the time, thoroughly bad people. Uh, arrested and they go through this painstaking system mm-hmm. and s- some of them even get off on a technicality which we accept because that is the price to pay for a civilized uh, and orderly system but it to the individual it's it's annoying and frustrating so they love to see the alternative in fiction plus I think at some level they understand that it's a metaphor that yeah. Risha hunts down the guy for 400 pages and he captures him at the end. And shooting him is is really a metaphor for what would be the trial. You know, the, I would have to write two books. First of all, the chase thriller and then the legal thriller for, for the guy's trial. And so I think people understand that the summary execution at the end is a metaphor for justice being delivered. And I'm sure that people don't imagine these books or textbooks on how we ought to
0: live. No, well, I mean, I absolutely agree with you about that, but it is also a lot of other detective stories um, are very much in cahoots with the police. And that at the end of it, the detective, usually a sort of rather, you know, has had a pretty hopeless life and is a gumshoe, hands the person over to the police. And again, this makes a very different, but, can we come to just talk about your writing method, which is talked about an awful lot in um, Heather Martin's book, and I've certainly read about that, you do start with a sentence and you don't quite know where it's going to go.
1: Yeah, that's absolutely right. I um, I, al- I always start in September. And so... Uh, And that's because it was the anniversary of the first one. That's right. It was the anniversary of starting the first book, uh, which is both sentimental and also practical, because if you're going to do a book a year, you better get on with it. Um, And usually I write with no plan and no outline, because I feel that that would lock me in. I would have already told myself the story, even if it's only, you know, 10 lines of notes. This happens, then that happens, but it's really this, and it looks like that, and... If I had thought it out beforehand, then I've told myself the story, I'm bored with it and I'm ready for the next story. The typing out would be a nightmare. So I have no plan, no outline, don't know what's gonna happen. Don't even know what it's gonna be about or how it's gonna start or anything. And then usually in August, uh in August, I start to have some concept of maybe the opening scene or at least the opening paragraph And so I get down that opening line and I have never changed an opening line. I think this opening lines are so lovely. I mean, they're the only line in the whole book that doesn't follow another line. It could be anything you want. So I I find a good opening line and then I think, okay, what's gonna be a good second line? And that is basically what happens throughout the whole book. The book goes where it wants to go. And for me, it keeps it fresh, organic, Uh, unpredictable, really what I want is the same feeling that a reader gets when they're reading a really good book. Uh, I mean, when I've got a really good book on the go, I just can't wait to get back to it. You know, you pick it up, wow, what's gonna happen next? And that's the feeling I want as a writer. I sit down at the keyboard, I, I wanna be excited about what's gonna happen next. I don't wanna know already so yeah it's worked out as I go along and um, very often I have no clue until well into the book exactly what what the shape of it is going to be and I love it at bookstore events when people say to me oh I had it all figured out after 50 (laughs) pages I think really because I didn't
0: there's a good line in uh... Andy Martin's book when he follows you through a year of writing a book and he's he says that you once looked up and you said what am I going to do with this guy Kiva I have got no idea at this point where he's going to go and it just felt so extraordinary that that you can you know you can come to points in the book where you don't know what the road is
1: yeah absolutely like that and um, there was another part of that book where um reacher has seen a mysterious guy driving a cadillac in some kind of mysterious mission and then he walks into another store and there's the guy and i remember just doing that i I, there was no reason for it It, I i hadn't thought it out i just thought oh let's make that guy the cadillac driver and then you know, that excites me as a writer, then I've got to deal with that. I've, it, the next chapter I've got to think, all right, what, why? What? Why was he there? But it just seems so totally right to do it that, uh, you know, I put it down and I'll deal with it later.
0: And I gather also that once one of your editors said to you, um, do you think this really would have happened like this? And that you replied, that's how it happened.
1: Yeah, I mean, you get comments like that I think what they, she actually said was, wouldn't it be better if this happened after that? And I I, I said, yes, probably, but it didn't. Uh, you know, it's a strange psychological trick in my brain that obviously I know that this is made up, of course, but I treat it as if it was real. Anything that has happened up to a, a given point has happened. And, uh, Quite a few writers feel the same way, I think. I was talking to one guy and he'd constructed this plot about an assassin. And um, the assassin had to get into this guy's apartment in order to assassinate him. But much earlier in the book, the writer had made the apartment have a security thing in the lobby. It was very difficult to get into. And obviously the temptation is to go back and change that to make it easy to get into. But he said, no, you know, it's up to the character to solve the problem. And that's absolutely my approach. If I've done something earlier in the book that makes a a later scene difficult, that's not my problem. That's Rich's problem. He has to figure it out.
0: And where do you get the kind of overall um, ideas? I mean, one book that I particularly like was about the opioid crisis, and that you had this whole thing about these poor addicts being flown around America. I mean, do you pick up stuff? I know you are a voracious reader, but are there plots, this sort of mega plot into which Reacher will work? Are they formulating away in your head as the year goes by?
1: Yeah, they. Yeah, I mean, retrospectively, I realize that i look at uh, any situation with the idea, could, could this be used, you know, is this interesting? Uh, And I actually try and stay away from the gigantic issues, um, really for two reasons, you know, everybody else does that. uh, Mm -hmm. And it it will create a sort of inflation for the future. I mean, you know, a terrorist steals a nuclear bomb. Yeah. Okay, great, but what are you gonna do next year? The terrorist steals two nuclear bombs. I want to stay at a a more human level. And um, so, yeah, it's about the opioid thing—it uh, really struck me about how badly it is being handled. Really, for one fundamental reason: that until we can accept and admit that for a lot of those people living their hard scrabble lives, uh, you know, in, in, in the middle of America or, or the West, for those people, an opioid high. Mm -hmm. is undoubtedly the best feeling they have ever had in their lives. And until we understand that, we can't really help them. It's no good just tut-tutting and scolding about it. We've got to understand why do they need it. Mm -hmm. So I wanted to do that particular book. It was The Midnight Line. I wanted to do it almost from the addict's point of view to show what joy and happiness they get out of it. And by acknowledging that, I think, we can we can say, wait a minute, we're in a society now where people turn to opium, basically, to get joy and happiness. Why are they not getting joy and happiness normally? Uh, that is essentially the problem we have to
0: solve. It struck me as a very political book of yours, that, because it did head hard into that issue with a lot of... I mean, I certainly learnt a lot of facts about how that would happen did it have any effect i mean are you conscious when you write it that you are you know you're you're taking on a really big issue that
1: i yeah i mean i don't expect to make much effect that would be a bit grandiose i think but actually yeah the, the um i got a huge amount of mail from addicts saying thank you for portraying us as humans rather than just you know blank what mm-hmm. devices. Um, so that was gratifying. And I also was contacted by a lot of um, medical professionals who, uh, you know, are trying to find a cure, trying to find a, a method of treatment. Some of them wanted to quote from the book uh, to make some points. Of, and, of course, I would say yes to that. Some of them wanted endorsements for their own books, medical books, really to maybe bring them to a wider demographic. So yeah, I think it had some some minor effect, but America is a curiously Puritan country still. And to get people to admit that there is something happy about opioids is a huge moral step. But until we can take that step, we will never fix the problem. That's so interesting.
0: You bring in um, Reacher's family bit by bit over the last years, and you you give him a very a touching mother. But I mean, again, having read the Heather Martin book, I mean, you, you're you pretty, there's a, there's a very sad quote where you say, you know, you didn't feel wanted and your mother didn't like you. How, what was the process of giving Reacher a mother who he clearly loved very much and who clearly loved him? Was that- yeah. a- the process.
1: Yeah, completely. It was a it was a, a way of inventing a kind of alternative emotion for myself and exploring how does it actually feel to have a mother that you love and that loves you back. Um, you know, I didn't experience that, so I try and imagine it in in his uh, in his life. Plus, of course, the cliche in, in in that type of book is always that it's the father. Who is the influence, you know, the Marine who has <laughs> inculcated the standards and been the role model. And I just thought, again, you know, not deliberately to subvert anything, but just to make the point, I, I thought, actually, no, let's, Reacher is this huge hyper-masculine guy. Let's make it his mother, who was in fact a significant parent. Um, and I think she came out lovely. I think she, mm. she came out really, really well. She was introduced in, um, in The Enemy, I believe, which was the eighth book. Mm-hmm. And uh, I wanted to, she was dying in that book. Uh, you know, it was, a, it was a prequel, a flashback uh, to, to when she was sick and dying. And I also wanted to somehow subvert the American attitudes towards health which is uh, crazy over here. You know, everybody, if you've got the slightest thing wrong with you, it's an outrage and you must be immediately cured. And so typically people are often on six, eight, or 10 different drugs or courses of treatment for every little thing. And I find that very tiresome and and fundamentally very unrealistic. Mm -hmm. And so I wanted to introduce this European alternative Richard's mother being French I wanted to have this European acceptance and and his mother specifically says you, you know you you grow up you get old you die it's normal it's not a tragedy um and in some ways it was also a sort of third layer in that it was a coded message to my own daughter to to say um you know it's it's going to come to an end at some point, and that's nothing to be outraged about.
0: And did um, did you as I mean you and Reacher obviously extremely um, you know bonded at birth as such. Did did the creation of that mother was it a lovely process?
1: Oh, it was. Yeah, it was. It was imagining. You know, I don't wanna be too unfair about my own mother. She had a hard life, uh, typical of that generation. Um, Very dislocated education because of the depression in the 30s. And then of course, uh, the Second World War, that was basically her whole teenage. Um, From the age of, yeah, literally her entire teenage from the age of 13 to 19 She never had a new pair of shoes because Mm. of rationing and shortages and so on. She had a hard and bitter life. And then uh, post-war austerity, of course, was very tough. But they were bad parents. You know, they should not have had children. They weren't really capable of dealing with that on a human or emotional level, which meant that... as as far as I understand it, she had some kind of fantasy for what I should be or how I should turn out. And of course, the reality is nobody turns out according to your pre-birth fantasy. They are who they are. And they were completely unable to react to the reality of their children as opposed to the dream. Um, So... Yeah, you know, the unwanted thing was literally true. She did not want a normal person going about normal affairs. She wanted a theoretical fantasy that would become, you know, Lord Chief Justice or some. In her case, she was obsessed with medicine. You know, she would have wanted me to be head of the Royal College of Surgeons or something or or whatever. And of course, in in reality, all of us missed these alleged targets. And so we were perpetual disappointments.
0: And did she know, for instance, that I mean, again, in Heather's book, I mean, talks quite a lot about fights in the playground and you, because you were, you became really tall really young, didn't you? So did. you would break, you were a little junior reacher in many ways of breaking up fights and getting into some quite tough situations. Did she know? Yeah
1: she you know reacher is me when I was about nine uh, you know that's the, the basis of it and uh, in more than one way you know I I didn't like injustice either and and if there was uh, somebody bullying somebody else I, I I didn't like that and it kind of spiraled into a, a thing where I was somehow appointed by the group as the uh, lawgiver as it were and so I remember one time a little girl called Jill uh, was complaining that this boy called Richard was, I mean, now we would call it inappropriate touching or sexual assault. Um, you know, we were nine. We didn't, we didn't know those terms, but that's what it was. And she was very upset about it. And so I, I followed this guy, Richard, home and uh well on the way home there was this behind a church hall there was a big bank covered in nettles so I smacked him around a little bit and then threw him down this bank through all these nettles and then I walked home and inevitably of course within half an hour the phone rings and it's this guy's mother complaining about it so um that yeah, you know that stuff intruded a lot
0: That's a very Reacher thing to do, except of course the phone wouldn't ring with uh, his mother complaining. So I can see it's nearly time to bring in the audience, but I must ask you a few more things. So obviously you had to put Reacher in America. I mean, you couldn't have had Reacher roaming around the Cotswolds or Gloucestershire, could you? He had to go to America. And even though you did start the first book when you were still in England. I mean, do you, do you travel a lot? I mean, you have a real, there's a real feeling of kind of on the road with Reacher, getting on the Greyhound buses and, you know, the Simon and Garfunkel, I'm off to look for America, you know, yeah. taking the the New Jersey Turnpike, all that kind of 60s stuff about the fabulousness of the open space.
1: Yeah, and the open space is the critical thing. I mean, Reacher would have worked in Europe 500 years ago, when yeah. there was still a, a sense of danger and emptiness, you know, the Black Forest was uncharted mm-hmm. and all that kind of thing. But of course, now Europe is too densely populated and settled. So Reacher has to go to somewhere where there is still a frontier. Uh, conceivably, he could have worked in Australia, but you yeah. know, of course, the the market there is small. <laughs> so it had to be America, which has picked, you know, has imported that frontier legend. So yeah, America is, is, is where he had to be. And I do travel, yeah. I, I first went to the US in 1974, which is now more than 46 years ago. And exactly that, um, taking the bus or the train in search of America, I've done that endlessly. Some of it for work, um, you know, doing book tours, but a lot of it just for fun, you know, just drive somewhere, get on the bus and, um, What's fascinating to me especially is America has the interstate highway system, which is similar to the motorway system, but it absolutely replaced existing routes from A to B. So that there are thousands of places that that back in the 40s used to be the main route between somewhere and therefore it had towns along the way, Uh, that then was replaced by the interstate that maybe ran 50 miles parallel. And so those places have dried up and died. I mean, a lot of them are literally ghost towns. Some of them are barely surviving, but they're incredibly atmospheric. And so, yeah, I'll just wander on a completely random basis just for the fun of it. Uh, There's always people to meet and something to see.
0: And is that how you decide your... I mean, how do you pick the location? Because Richard... everywhere on the the wonderful artery of roads. He never goes on a train, does
1: he? Yeah, very, well, yeah, that's true. The train thing is is less flexible than a bus. Yeah,
0: than the greyhound.
1: Yeah, so I do go to the places, but in reverse order than most authors do. You know, most authors might pick a location and then go and research it. I do it in reverse, I've been somewhere um i've been you know I've been to lots of different places so then when i'm thinking of that first sentence for the book obviously the mood and the feel of the book uh need to be pinned down pretty early and i do it almost like a composer chooses a key for that for a piece do i want it to be hot do i want it to be cold and hard and gray or whatever and yeah you know if it's going to be cold and hard and gray then i'll think oh well the coast of Maine, you know, the Atlantic Ocean, mm-hmm. about April, that is as bad, as hard and grey as you can get. Or if I want it really hot and steamy, uh, you know, the west of Texas when it's 110 degrees or something like that.
0: Yeah. And, uh, I mean, if, if you were on a long drive with Reacher, what do you think you'd talk about?
1: Probably nothing. I mean, that's what's interesting when uh, if my brother Andrew and I are, are driving together, we don't talk much, you just sit there in a kind of companionable silence. And if it was me and Richard, yeah, he wouldn't, he wouldn't say much, I wouldn't say much. Maybe we'd have it pass something by and have a quick exchange. But um,
0: I like people who are comfortable with silence. Yeah, well, that's certainly him. I mean, um, just, um, just before we turn over over, I have to ask you, I mean, you, you have said that uh, you, you thought it was a mistake. Um, to let Tom Cruise make the films. Is that right or am I putting words into your mouth? Well, I think The fans didn't like it, did they?
1: Yeah, my mistake was underestimating how much the fans would hate it. Uh, Because obviously for me it's about the books. The books are the thing. And the movie is a parallel uh, phenomenon, somebody else's business, really somebody else's opinion. And as a being a book person myself and as a writer, I did not see how the movie could in any way taint or influence or alter people's opinion of the books. It didn't make any sense to me. And that was a mistake. That there are people, if they hate the movie, they feel differently about the books. So that was definitely an error. On the other hand, um, you know, looking at it super cynically like we have to in the commercial world. Tom Cruise was fabulous for promotion yeah. in places where I can't really go, Brazil, let's say, or Indonesia or uh, China and places where the, he's a huge star. And uh, so as a promotional vehicle, it was perfect. As a guy, Cruise was wonderful, just a lovely man, you know. great fun, uh, very, it was lovely to spend time with him but it was a dead end as far as a portrayal of Reacher goes. So
0: could anybody be Reacher?
1: Well, we've got, you know, we're doing Amazon TV now. Um,
0: who is Reacher?
1: He's a guy called Alan Richson, who is not completely unknown, but uh, at the beginning of his career, and um, he looks and feels to me like, like, exactly like Reacher should. So I think after the first false start, we've definitely got it right this time.
0: Great, okay. I'm going to bring in um, some questions here. So, okay, someone's also come up with about Frances Negley. Um, Is she coming back?
1: Well, I think she always will. Um, She's the closest thing to her best friend, Reacher has, she's a fascinating character in her own right. And she definitely will come back in future stories. Uh, people, have al- people also ask, what about a story about her? Which I think well, is-
0: that's interesting.
1: It, yeah, but that's more of a difficult problem because really what is fascinating about Nagley is how unexplained she is. We don't know why she is who she is. And that adds to the mystery. But if, if I wrote a, sto- a whole book about her, I would have to explain her a little more. And I think- that would take away the allure to be honest.
0: So slightly on that same vein, Sebastian asked, does any character from the reach of books keep coming back to you? Maybe saying, I have a story you can tell.
1: Um... In the short term, all of them, you know, when I finish a book, I hate it because I'm saying goodbye to these characters, you know, it's just usually the woman character is not gonna reappear and some of the other supporting characters are not either. And I, I miss them all and they all could have a story. It's simply a question of time, you know, you gotta write a a book, how many more books can you write that year? And mm-hmm. uh, so a, a lot of the time, and it's a bittersweet thing for, the, for, for me, but also I can understand a bittersweet thing for the reader. You, you're with these fascinating people and you're never gonna see them again. But that characterizes Reacher, you know, neither is he. Uh, it puts the reader right inside Reacher's head
0: there. So something I wanted to ask you that um, we haven't touched was somewhere I, I, I read you saying, um, you know, that you, you feel you have to slightly dislike Reacher in order to keep your tension with him. I didn't quite understand that. What, what do you mean?
1: Well, dislike is a slight inversion. It's, it's that I must not like him too much. Okay. Because again, based on the experience of reading many long running series, what you tend to find is very often, there's a point at which the author falls in love with the character uh, after four or five books sometimes or whatever. And the series falls apart at that point because the author has got to present an honest, authentic portrait of the character. And if you're in love with the character, you're defensive of the character and you're unwilling to show the bad bits or the warts. And that produces a kind of uh, fake, glossy appearance. So what I do is I I aim to like Reacher less than you're going to like him. And in a circular way, that's why you like him because I keep him honest and authentic.
0: So there's so many questions now coming in from everyone. But anyway, this one is a good question. Steve Shaw, why doesn't Reacher have a longer term friendship with a male character, albeit in distance, an old mate, as it were? I suppose he had his brother for a bit, but then you got rid of him too.
1: That's actually a great question, and I don't know the answer to it. I just as I said I write instinctively and for me personally as uh, you know for Lee Child personally I would much rather spend time with women and actually all my good friends are women I'm not one of those guys who who really has that buddy thing where you know I'll go and hang out at the baseball or go to the bar with a bunch of guys or even one guy I sort of I don't know why I missed that in a way. Give me a choice, the fun happens when you're hanging out with women. And Richer is the same, you know, it takes intense pleasure from these very brief relationships that he has with women. And it's a great, why doesn't Reacher have a male buddy from the army? Uh, he certainly has a lot of ex-acquaintances and a, a lot of ex-colleagues that he respects and likes, but the closeness I think for him will always be with women.
0: Um, so, from Denise Lester, where does your I'm interested in this? Where does your knowledge of firearms and sniper shooting come from? There's also another line you have somewhere, which you say, um, Reacher, Reacher was the best in the world, but there were maybe five or five or six who were better." And I've always wondered who were that five or six in your head.
1: Well, I, you know, I'm from uh, I'm from Birmingham, and you grow up with, with uh, an appreciation for precision metalworking, you know, it's built in. And so my attraction to guns is, and I do not own any, I have never fired a gun, I have never held a gun, except for if a photographer wants a particular pose or something like that. Um, but I am fascinated by any intricate precision machine and I, I need to know how do they work um so i on a technical level i know a lot about it on a cultural level i know a lot about it but personally i don't and the, and the i don't use them and the sniper thing is about you know just the laws of physics it's one of the most intricate mm-hmm. calculations you've got to make uh, the distance the way the bullet will fall in a parabola the way that the wind will move it it is one of the most uh, interesting uh, technical problems for for a shooter to do and so yeah I've got a mind, I know nothing of any significance but I, I know an awful lot of trivia and I love process I love understanding how things happen and so that's where it
0: all comes from so here's a funny question well I think it's slightly funny from Ivan I, Ian V do you share Reach's love of English quality shoes? Oh, absolutely! So. Yeah. What are your favorites? And can you get them in the USA? Um, I, can, can...
1: I absolutely do because that, and, and, and it's a kind of buried atavistic memory of of childhood because, you know, I'm not pleading poverty but everybody was on the breadline, you know. Not on the, well, in our house if there was, if there was a shilling left over the night before payday, it was a miracle. And everybody was in that same boat. And there was a sort of line where if you were above it, you had leather shoes. And if you were below it, you wore those plastic jelly sandals. And um, it was incredibly significant at the time. So I've got this baked in in desire to have proper leather shoes. And I like things that are well made and properly made. And English shoemaking is the, is by far the best in the world, and so I, I generally get chinese uh, from Northampton, which okay. seem to uh, suit the shape of my foot really well. And typically, if you ever see a picture of me, um, the, my entire outfit, uh, suit, tie, what shirt, whatever, is worth. Way less than than one of the shoes because I do like decent shoes. So yeah, Cheney from uh, Northampton is my favorite. I'm not sure whether you can get them in the U.S., but I don't have to because I'm. I put it in one of the books. is wearing these Cheney shoes and he loves them, and they send they send me pairs now.
0: So uh, it's lovely. Okay. Oh, that's very nice. So this is also a good question. And I meant to ask it, and I forgot, which is who wrote the first sentence of the book that you uh, wrote with your brother? It
1: was, um, it was my brother who, who wrote the first sentence of the new book. It was, because uh, I was relying on Andrew to, you know, not dramatically reboot the series, but just give it new energy and bring it slightly more into the 21st century. So, uh, Andrew worked out this plot that involved uh, computers mm-hmm. and cyber crimes um, so and we agreed we should start with with the victim the hapless character who's being uh, falsely accused so we uh, we agreed to s- start with him and and Andrew wrote it um, and to be honest, I said it as a bit of a test you know could he get the same kind of first line that i I would and he did so um, I let him run with
0: it, yeah. It's quite hard to figure out how you do a collaboration given how you've written up to now.
1: Completely, yeah. I mean, it's virtually impossible. Um, and so it was really, what the, you know, the dreaded thing in Hollywood, what they call the story conference. Uh, we talked an awful lot about what should happen, but two people can't write. If two people are physically writing together, it's a mess. So it was a discussion. He did most of the writing and I, I then did the checking.
0: And was that what was that like as an experience?
1: It was uh, trepidatious at first. I mean, this is an experiment. Is it going to work? And, you know, this is my brother. I, I, am I going to, what am I going to do? Hit him? Fire him? <laughs> I, don't him. I don't
0: know. I don't know. What would Richard do? But it's, yeah. um, will you go into mourning when Andrew completely takes over? I mean, do you think you will
1: Mm -hmm. no i mean in a way i take it as a as a sign of success that happens sometimes in in the literary world where the character floats free you know it's no longer owned by me and that's a process that started a long time ago because The reader owns the character. And I was, for many years now, been aware of how the reader has seized that character. The reader owns that character. And it's been really funny talking to people. In the early days, they were very aware, here's a human being writing these books about this character. And now the character is owned collectively. And my opinion counts for nothing, no more than anybody else's opinion, which I think is fascinating. How does that happen intellectually that a a character migrates outward and is owned by everybody and the author is just one amongst millions?
0: So we have to end now, but so are you saying that Reacher has become a completely iconic part of our culture and our history in the way that we have a Robin Hood for the generations. We have a Reacher who will always be a part of us. It's a, It's a, you know, Shane, not that I think that Reacher is like westerns, but we do have those characters littered about that we we draw on.
1: We do, and um, you know, Robin Hood, of course, is is a great example. And uh, you know, at the moment, Reacher's is about a millionth part as substantial as Robin Hood in the public imagination. But he's on he's on the same track. You know, he's 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 on. He's he, he maybe a couple of laps behind at this point because Robin Hood is a thousand years old. But, uh, yeah, same same basket, absolutely. Reacher, I hope, is now lodged in in, in the wider consciousness just like Robin Hood or Sir Lancelot or anybody else like that.
0: Well, it's absolutely true that uh, in the world we're in, Reacher's got a lot of work to do. So. Lee Child, um, thank you so much for being with us. And thank you a huge amount to all of you. I see no one has dropped off the participants. We have about 400 people on. i have got 56 more questions, which we don't have time for. Um, But I thank you all very, very much for that. Um, Lee's new book, The Sentinel will be out in a fortnight. And the biography, The Reacher Guy is out and absolutely worth reading. And if you are not yet a Reacher fan, Can I, um, can I advise you to get the habit? Because you don't really need to take opioids, but you can have an extremely good time. And uh, it's a wonderful character. Um, From Five by 15, thank you and good night. And please join us next week when we're doing our next in the series of the Earth Conventions with Rathbones. Um, Check us out online and thank you all and good night.